welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and I have another interview episode to share with you. I had already ordered this book before I knew that I would be interviewing its author. The book is The Maid. It is a debut novel by Nita Prose. The book is zippy and entertaining and beautifully crafted and an interesting character-based spin on the murder mystery genre. And I'm so glad that I was able to speak about it with Nita. So let's get right into the interview right now. I am so pleased to be sitting down with Nita Prose, who is the debut author of the recent hit mystery novel, The Maid. It's been a big old bestseller, uh, and I absolutely loved it. And while this may be Nita's first published book in the guise of author, she is actually no stranger to the world of publishing, having worked as a book editor for many years. Currently, she is the vice president and editorial director at Simon & Schuster in Toronto, Canada, where she lives. I find this impressive in and of itself that you were the vice president and editorial director at Simon & Schuster, Um, but also this means that you have a truly holistic view of the publishing process. I think one that few people have because that means you're quite busy. So I cannot wait to learn more about that. And I just want to say welcome to the podcast, Nita. I am so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So first off, I guess I have to ask whether there's any overlap in your work as editor and author, i.e., did the one lead directly to the other? Have you edited mysteries before? How how has this happened and how busy exactly are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a very good question. Uh, I am pretty darn busy these days between writing for myself and helping other people with their writing. But I do have to say, Kemper, that I find that this work is two halves of a whole for me. I've only ever been good at one thing. And that one thing is telling stories and helping (laughs) other people tell stories. So for me, the two things, editing and writing, are intrinsically linked. And my work with my authors means that I have fuel to devote to my own writing too. That's fantastic. Do you find now that your has your work or at least your perspective on the editorial process changed at all having been an author who's gone through not only the editorial process but the the sort of promotional machine and publicity and and all of that from an author's point of view do you feel differently about it or I definitely I you know it's illuminating in many ways it's not like I didn't know what the process was but there is yeah. a difference between knowing and feeling which is rather profound you know before I turned my hand to my debut novel, I was always so aware of the vulnerability and, you know, the sacrifice it takes in order to write. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, writers really do take a big risk by putting their creative work on the page. But it was only when I had to do that myself that I realized what it felt like. (laughs) And so, you know, and it is, it really does sometimes feel like you just jumped off a cliff into oblivion and it's lonely and difficult and disorienting. And, you know, I will never approach any of my authors the same 
as a result, I just have profound empathy for that situation, which I call going into the maze. And what I mean is that, you know, the, you know, you're as a writer, you're standing outside this labyrinth of story and somehow you have to, you know, find the courage to walk in knowing there's dead ends and monsters and make it to the end of that narrative on your own. I, oh, I love that analogy. That's really great. Well, let's let's talk about the maze that you somehow found your way through from start to finish, I think quite uh, brilliantly. We should talk specifically about the maid. And I'm just going to give a very broad strokes, non-spoilery overview of what I think the maid is. I imagine that you have probably had to do this uh, umpteen times <laughs> in promoting the book. So I, I will... <laughs> shoulder that load for a second as, <laughs> as I like to do, but then you can correct me or, or edit uh, my broad overview if you'd like. So having just recently read it for me, I would say that the story follows Molly Gray, who is our titular maid uh, who works at the Regency Grand Hotel, which seems to be a fancy upscale establishment, though there are definitely lots of not so upscale things happening at the Regency Grand Hotel. And Molly is one of the people who cleans guests' rooms on a daily basis when the guests are out. Most of us have been to hotels. We know how this works. And she is a bit different. Um, I'm not sure that we even really need to put a label on it, but I know that while I was reading, I wondered if she might not be displaying symptoms of Asperger syndrome in that she's very intelligent, but she has problems relating to people, especially in social situations. Basically, she doesn't read social cues very well. And this has only gotten harder since the death of her beloved gran. That's her grandmother who raised and supported her. But Molly is forging ahead. She's carrying on bravely with her job until one day she discovers a dead body. And the mystery unfolds from there. And of course, this is a scenario that we, and I am now talking about myself and all of the listeners of this podcast who are mystery fans, we are all very familiar with this scenario. In fact, it is often the maid who finds the body, right? Perhaps dropping a breakfast tray and breaking out into a scream <laughs> uh, when that happens. <laughs> and what I love about what you do here is that you're presenting us with an extremely traditional setup, a room that contains a dead body, a closed circle of suspects inside a hotel, but you're doing so through the extremely specific and extremely contemporary filter of Molly, who is our first person narrator. Would you say that's kind of a fair setup? For this book. I would say that is tremendously accurate. And can I volunteer you to continue doing this for the rest of my <laughs> interviews in perpetuity? Would that Absolutely. be okay? <laughs> <laughs> there might be a fee involved, uh, okay. but you know. <laughs> um, now, I do know from my researches into you and this book before doing this episode that you happened upon a hotel maid once when you were on a trip and thought to yourself, what an intimate and yet invisible job this really is. You know, how much a hotel maid might know about everyone who stays at a hotel and yet how little those people know about her. And it is usually a her, not always, but usually. And you have this fantastic prologue that opens the story, which I loved so much because it really sets the stage, as it were, so brilliantly. And you conclude as follows. I am your maid. I know so much about you. But when it comes down to it, what is it that you know about me? My question for you, I promise there's a question in here, um, <laughs> is when you happened upon that hotel maid and you started to wonder about her and her situation, were you already at that point interested in writing a mystery and kind of looking for your way in? Or was that the true starting point? Did the mystery spring up from there? 
It really was the starting point. I've always written, and certainly one of the things that I do in my day job as an editor is ghostwriting, but my ghostwriting, you know, involves helping experts who uh, come from other fields in nonfiction mm-hmm. write about their experiences on the page. And, and you know, as a collaborator, I help them learn how to, how to storytell. But so I always knew at some point I wanted to turn my hand to a novel, but I didn't know when. And I certainly did not expect this to happen. But when it did, I really knew that I had an idea and a voice that was so compelling that it motivated me to get up very, very early in the morning (laughs) and just try to see if I could work the narrative problem out. And the process was hair pulling and enjoyable in equal measure, which, you know, is just about the best place you can get to as a writer. So I was very enthused when I had the motivation to continue writing after that prologue. I was just going to say hair pulling and enjoyable in equal measure is about as good as it gets, right? Because I think... Yeah, it doesn't get better than that. And anybody yeah. who says it does is probably lying. It's totally lying. There has to be mm-hmm. some hair pulling involved, right? That yes. just that just comes with the territory. That's um, right. That's great. I, I And you know, you can feel that too. I think this character really does spring off the page and it feels as though the story is coming from her organically, which is a funny thing to say about such a you know, quote unquote, high concept mystery. But I think that's mm. part of why it also connects with readers as as much as it has. I certainly right. felt that. So there is only one mystery author who you name check in the course of The Maid, or at least I think there's only one. Uh, maybe it's just that I was so delighted and dazzled when I saw her name that I didn't have eyes for anyone else. But here's the <laughs> quote from, from your book. I might take a nice bath and read an Agatha Christie novel. Gran has so many of them, all of which I've read more than once. So I know I don't really have to ask this question, but uh, this is an Agatha Christie podcast. You know, you know where I'm going to go here. I have to imagine that you too are a big Christie fan. I'm a massive Christie fan. She is just the master of mystery and of character building with so much economy and of creating, you know, this cornucopia cast of suspects and laying the breadcrumbs that are a delight and a horror for the reader to come across and put in a little basket as we collect our way into solving the murder and the crime. I have always admired her ever since I was a child and I read, uh, you know, my first title um, by her. I can't even remember what it was, but she really is a model for this book in many ways. And as you said before, you know, this is, this is a book where I tried to blend something traditional a la Agatha and something very modern as well. And that was my little nod to the very major talent that was Agatha Christie. Yeah, well, I I appreciated that, and I could I, I can feel the Christie-ishness in this book, not only in the setup, but you know, even the fact that this book is just absolutely littered with humor. Littered is potentially a poor choice of words. Molly would <laughs> nice. definitely not approve. Not littered with anything. Um, sprinkled, maybe peppered, but you know, there's a lot of humor in this book. I have to say, the the line "Who ate powdered donuts without a plate?" literally made me laugh aloud. It's not often. <laughs> that I laugh aloud when I'm reading a mystery, especially contemporary mystery, because I think they often tend to be quite serious. Yes. Um, and 
you know, dramatic. But so often what Christie did is that she was able to infuse a traditional page-turning mystery with the spirit of a P.G. Woodhouse who he, she hugely admired and, and he hugely admired her. It was very much a mutual appreciation. And um, I think people forget that because sometimes the adaptations tend to also be very serious. Uh, not all of them. I think it's just such an important part of what she does and what you're doing here. But I have to say the most Christie-esque thing about this book for me was the way that it makes use of one classic Christie rule. And on this podcast, what we do is deconstruct Christie stories and, and kind of go through how she comes up with her clues and what the principles are behind those clues. And there's one principle that's just been brought up over and over again on this podcast as we've gone through Christie's oeuvre. It's especially such a shame that Catherine isn't here because we had a running joke that whenever we came across this rule, this principle of Christie's, that she would be the one to say it. So I'm going to have to say it now. And I'm positive that many listeners will be mouthing along with me as I say, never underestimate the help. That is such a key precept even in reading Christie. And here's a key quote uh, from Molly, actually, in your book. This is what she says. In my uniform, as long as I keep my mouth shut, I can be anyone. You could see me in a police lineup and fail to pick me out, even though you walked by me 10 times in one day. And there are so many Christie's you know, novels, short stories that make use of this principle without being more specific. So as not to spoil, I'll just mention Death in the Clouds and Three Act mm. Tragedy, yes. which are two very good early examples. And then on the short story side, one of my personal favorites is the Miss Marple short story, The Affair at the Bungalow. It's a very clever use of uh, the don't underestimate the help principle. But the interesting thing is that in your book, this goes not just for Molly, but also for the kitchen worker, Juan Manuel. He works in the kitchen in the hotel and also for a character we meet very late in the novel. And I won't say who this person is because it would probably spoil things. But this person also feels somewhat invisible, as though people don't really pay attention to them. And uh, it's not just necessarily the help, the quote-unquote help in Christie who get underestimated. It's other people too, people who might be older or plainer, et cetera, et cetera. And I wonder if in this area you were also inspired by Christie or how you came upon this notion, which really does, I think, in many ways underlie the mystery of the book, the way that it happens and the way that it's even solved. Yes, well, you're absolutely right that that is a, a Christism that I've picked up on and greatly admired. And um, it's also a very contemporary issue, I think. If we've mm. learned anything in the last two years, it's how valuable the help, quote unquote, and I mean that in terms of service workers in our midst, are to keeping the very fabric of our society working. And yes, we have underestimated them, have we not? And, and my goodness, in the last two years, there are so many examples where they have been brought to the fore and where they have helped us through in you know, the most poignant and important ways. You know, I'm talking about people who are putting groceries in bags and, and stocking our shelves and, and just making everything work when we weren't even allowed out of, our, out of our houses. And so that was kind of in the background of my mind. The other thing is there's, you know, that great upstairs, downstairs um, sensibility that Agatha Christie understood. Mm -hmm. And I think the hotel is such a venue where there is a hierarchy. You know, those at the top are the guests, 
You know, it is uh, this grand illusion of the Regency Grand Hotel that I depict in the book, this Art Deco five-star boutique hotel. Well, it is so grand and so elegant, but only for the guest. And that illusion is actually propped up by the help. It is propped up by the, the people in the laundry and the maids and the receptionists and the doormen who are all part of creating that splendor for the guests, that experience. I think that's true of real hotels too. And it was something that I wanted to um, portray on the pages. Yeah, I, I was thinking about it and it really is one of the few sort of environments in which you still have that stark of a class system, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's always, I think, the issue people run into when you're, if you're trying to do something golden age-esque, often those rigid class systems that are form the backbone of so many of those mysteries just are, they're either different or just don't exist in, you know, at all or in the same way in a contemporary setting. So it, you know, it doesn't really make sense so much to set something at a country estate because we know that they're really not, even though, of course, there will be people there who are providing sort of service type of work. It's not happening in the same way that it happened in 1920, right? Yeah. There, but there hotels, aren't so many butlers around anymore. Exactly. Yeah. But hotels kind of do, right? Like it's, yes. you know, people act as maids exactly as they acted as maids on those country estates 50 or a hundred years ago. And in hotels at that point too, it hasn't really changed all that much. It's a little bit frozen in time, especially at these upscale boutique kind of places. So it really is the perfect contemporary setting because it, it's, it's realistic yet peculiar. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right? exactly. Exactly. Well, a little bit on that note, I mean, this is always a dangerous game to play. So I just want to state up front that I think your book is gloriously original, which is one of its <laughs> primary charms. But there were a few titles that it actually did remind me of, and not even necessarily mystery titles. And I'm just curious, as you know, a person who is steeped in books, if you were drawing on them at all or thought about them at all while you were writing, because these were the titles that came to mind for me. First, there was The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime by Mark Haddon. Sure, yeah. Which is, you know, also a would-be murder mystery of sorts or mystery of sorts featuring a narrator who has something like Molly's challenges when it comes to social situations. Although in that case, he's a child, which sort of exacerbates his difficulties. Um, the second one was Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine by Gail Honeyman. That's also about a, you know, a young woman who has difficulty relating to the people around her, often to both comedic effect and her own detriment, which is something that definitely happens to Molly in, in this book. And then finally, there's Knives Out you know, the Ryan Johnson film, which is also full of humor and mystery and equal parts, just as, as your story is. And it too is actually from the perspective of the help in the form of a, a nurse's aide played wonderfully by Anna Diarmas, who I feel like I know a lot better now than I did at the time Knives Out came out. I think that was kind of her first major role. Were any of those books, would you say that they were influences or I'm just, I'm just curious if you sort of can see those echoes as well, or those resemblances between well, your Well, yes, absolutely. So, you know, in the mental mood board in my mind, you know, <laughs> Agatha Christie was certainly one of those major influences. But I think if you added um, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, as you said, by Gail Honeyman, um, which was one of the first sort of genre busting novels to feature a female protagonist who was more of a cactus than anything else, full of prickles. And um, yet 
it is an, uh, a journey of uplift, meaning uplifting literature, which is the term the Brits use. We often mm-hmm. use um, feel-good fiction in North America. And it's a term to denote a sort of novel that is a journey of the spirit, that has a sense of hope. And what I loved about that book is that we did have this prickly character who was almost unlikable at the beginning of the novel. Mm-hmm. And the journey for the character Well, it it was a journey, but it was more for the reader to come to love her. And so with Molly, that was something that was really important to me, that we would go on a journey where hopefully, if I've done my job right, to live as her is to love her. So that was definitely an influence. Now, I don't consider myself the kind of mystery writer that, you know, cleaves very tightly to the whodunit. Yes, this book is a whodunit. And yes, there is a murder, the murder of Mr. Black that happens in the first chapter. And of course, that serves as an important narrative entry point and engine to the story. But, you know, for your for your listeners out there who really, really love a book that you know, guides them through the collection of clues. And it's really about seeing if you can beat the writer to figure out who done it first. Well, this is maybe a different sort of novel because it is so character driven. You know, this is a whodunit on one hand, but it is also a novel about what it means to be the same as everyone else and yet entirely different. It has that uplit engine as well, where, you know, the growth of the character is just as important as the whodunit. And then I would say a couple of other influences on my mental mood board were, as you rightly guess, Knives Out, a film I absolutely adored, Mm -hmm. um, and also the board game Clue. Now, I don't know if you played it as a child, but I absolutely loved it. I love the combination of a simple setting, a character, and a room. And of course, there are nods to the board game Clue throughout the book in how I name characters and the things that they do. I wanted the reader to have fun and to have a sense of play. And as you mentioned, a sense of humor about the whodunit. You know, is it the bartender with a rope in the kitchen or is it the maid with a pillow in the bedroom? And that is um, my little nod to Clue. Okay, I can cross out then a question I was going to ask you, which is, so is the fact that so many of the characters' last names are colors, is that a nod to Clue? (laughs) Yep, clearly gotcha. (laughs) I got it. (laughs) It's very, very funny. Yeah. It's interesting. We discussed this a lot with Christy, many Christie's, especially from her classic sort of era, you know, in the thirties and forties are traditional mystery puzzles or whodunits, whatever, whatever you want to call that, where you truly can figure out who done it by mm-hmm. collecting these clues and you know getting there before the detective does at the end it is truly possible to get from point a to point b some of especially christie's later books aren't so much yes. because she was doing different things and the emphasis changed late career gem of hers with, that we've already discussed on the podcast is endless night for example oh. um in our most recent novel episode we covered nemesis and those are two fantastic books that are murder mysteries. It's almost always a murder mystery in Christie, but they're not really whodunits in the traditional sense because 
she had a focus on character or there were different themes that were preoccupying her. So even Christy did that. So I, I agree with you and actually think that is a fair warning. If someone is saying, I want a pure, you know, puzzle mystery, John Dixon Carr, 40s era Agatha Christie book, like that's just all about the puzzle. Of course, I would not point them to The Maid by Nita Prose, but it's, you know, the mystery genre is like, I think of it as like an accordion. It's not just like a rigid box and it can take so many different kinds of stories, which is why there's so much more that can fall under the mystery umbrella than just one type of mystery. And I love it because I think what you're doing is you're really pushing on those boundaries in this book because it does become just as important by the end. Well, where is Molly ending up and who is in her circle and has she changed her circumstances by the end of the book? And what is she going to do after the last page? That's just as important as who done it. And you take care of both Thank <laughs> by, you. by the end of the book. And I do love your analogy of mystery as an accordion. And I think that is so very important You know, one of the challenges that I experienced while writing this book was figuring out how to innovate the genre rather than imitate the genre. You know, when you're entering a genre like this, where you have masters like Agatha Christie, my goodness, the bar is set so high. And for me, the answer to that creative problem was about combining genres, Mm -hmm. taking an uplit sort of approach, a journey of growth and spirit, and mixing that with some of those, you know, traditional influences of the Agatha style mystery novel. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the other things that was important to me was to create a main character, a sleuth that was not a sleuth, you know? And if you look at Hercule Poirot or uh, Miss Marple, one of the great beauties about those two characters is that they walk into a room and you know, as a reader, that they see everything, that they note everything, and that you're just kind of like, a step behind them and that eventually you're going to catch up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that is one of the great joys of those two characters. I wanted to do something different though, because my goodness, she did that all right. You know, and other people have too. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, not a bad character there. So I wondered if I could, you know, invert the paradigm somehow. And, you know, Haddon certainly did that. Not a straight mystery either, but he certainly inverted that paradigm. You know, could I have a main character who believes that her perspective on the world is flawless and that she sees everything? But in fact, the real sleuth in the story is the reader. Absolutely. I had so much fun with that. What I think you were doing is that, you know, anytime you have a first person narrator who is telling the story in a book, there is going to be some sort of a skewed perspective, right? And in, and some books make more of it than others. Christy herself even did, uh, especially in early Poirot when Hastings was the narrator, there would often be moments where Hastings would make an observation yes. and the reader would, would know. Mm. <laughs> and it would... <laughs> It would either relate to the mystery and sometimes she would be able to obfuscate by way of Hastings's imbecility, if I'm if I'm being a little cruel to poor Captain Hastings, um, or she would get humor out of it, just as you did with your who left these, uh, ate these powdered Powder donuts, donuts without a plate yes. comment. 
Yes. Um, and you, you get a lot of bang for your buck, I think, by making that perspective extremely skewed or, you know, just having a really, really heavy filter on it since Molly has such a different way of looking at things and experiencing things and encountering things. And um, it works really well, actually, for the mystery genre. I really love that you did that. It's interesting that you mentioned the, you know, that this is this book falls under the uplift genre. Um, because I was going to ask you about genre terms in that I was very, very fascinated to see that some of the blurbs for your book called it cozy. And they said that it was a cozy mystery. <laughs> yeah. Now, cozy is a very controversial term because some people use it dismissively. My former partner, Catherine, I have to say this uh, in, you know, in her honor and her memory, she loathed the term cozy mm. because she felt that it was often used in this dismissive way. And she especially hated when people would call Christy cozy because it would often indicate that I think people weren't reading her very closely or perhaps had only watched a certain type of adaptation. Because if you read the text, often very, very bad and horrible things happen and the characterization feels very real. And it's not necessarily the type of cozy that I think today we often associate with the term, which just to be super, super glib about it, I would say is you know, mysteries that feature cats and recipes. <laughs> it's that kind of, the, kind of the cozy subgenre. Yes, that, yes. I mean, I have to imagine that is not what people meant in some of those blurbs when they were calling your book cozy, because I think people use it in very different ways. I'm curious if you would call your book cozy or what you just think of the, of the term overall. I would say I'm fine with people using it, but it is, as you've noted, and if Catherine were here, I think she'd be nodding along. It is a bit of a head scratcher. Yeah. <laughs> there are, let me see, um, there's murder, there's uh, human trafficking, there's abuse, there's, you know, all kinds of things that uh, 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 other spoiler-esque things that I cannot talk sure. about mm -hmm. um, in my novel that are anything but cozy. But I do think that I imbue the text and the characters with a sort of heartwarming glow, especially Molly in her relationship with Gran. Now, Gran is dead, very dead at the beginning of the novel. Mm -hmm. um, she has died and she has left uh, Molly to really fend for herself. Gran oriented her in every possible way in her life. And that loss leaves Molly in a state of abject grief at the beginning of the novel. So again, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that that's entirely cozy, but you get a sense at the beginning. And certainly I try and, and, and reinforce some of that tone throughout that maybe everything is going to be okay in the end, you know? And I think that's what readers sometimes pick up on when they're saying cozy that and the fact that there is no graphic violence there is no murder pornography of young women there is literally no blood on the pages and that was most intentional yeah you know I, the kind of violence i'm portraying is the violence that happens in the much more subtle ways person to person Absolutely. Which is, you know, so often the most upsetting violence there can be, right? I you agree know, entirely. Right? I mean, yeah. that's the thing. I think in some ways, you know, it's like we have to reclaim the term cozy because it doesn't necessarily have to be pejorative. I, for me, I think it, it it sometimes indicates, well, this is a book that's not dwelling on dark themes and wallowing in violence for the sake of wallowing. 
I think that sometimes the issue is that it became a counterpart or almost like the inverse of noir. And yes. given that noir was this male-driven subgenre of mystery and thriller that, you know, that was constantly lauded and given this sort of literary recognition uh, from the 40s onward, and that cozies and a lot of the more female-driven detective stories that were being written at the same time were dismissed. I think that's why the word probably needs to be reclaimed a little bit. And it's just yes. a tricky one, you know? It, it doesn't is. mean that we shouldn't use it, but it's really tricky. And I actually... I have, it was a listener somewhere. It might've been on Twitter or somewhere else. Someone was saying that what they try to do is differentiate between cozy with an S and cozy with a Z, <laughs> which probably only really works in the U S because I think we're the only ones who even use cozy with a Z, but that if you're referring to a quote unquote cozy with an S, that's kind of more like the genre cozy, which doesn't mean that it just has to be kittens and cooking recipes that it's right. it's sort of it's it's an indication of tone and whatnot versus the word cozy which usually more does mean you know something kind of diminutive and domestic potentially yes um, quite pejorative yeah. for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm still struggling with it, as you can tell. And I think it's just something that's probably going to continue to evolve over time. But seeing it in your blurbs, I just wanted to ask you about that. Well, you know, it's I, it's not like I didn't intend to provide readers with a certain kind of escape. Um, yeah. You know, I did. I, I wanted them to disappear into that into the world that I created. And I think that, too, is one of the elements that people are talking about when they talk about the cozy. You know, they want to sit back, escape their present tense reality and be taken into the heart of a story and disappear in it. In some ways, uh, for me, having having cozy on the label is just fine because I want the reader to go into the book with very few assumptions or maybe even the wrong ones and then be surprised by what they discover. Absolutely. I like that. So I have a couple of nosy questions. <laughs> nosy cozy or cozy About the book. nosy? Yeah, no, nosy cozy. Um, <laughs> so the Regency Grand Hotel in the book, this is a fictional hotel. Yes. Is it based at all on a real place? And of course, you know, it made me think of Christy famously setting one of her mm -hmm. novels in a fake hotel. It has the honor of being in the title at Bertram's Hotel. Of course. We've already covered it. And she she actually did base that on at least one real hotel. It, 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 there's a little bit of argument among Christy biographers and scholars as to which hotel she was really basing it on because she stayed at a lot of different hotels in she London. She sure did. But I'm curious, were you basing it on any real hotels? Was it complete fabrication? How did that come about? It's really a pastiche of several hotels that I've mixed and matched in my mind's eye. So, you know, there are a couple of hotels where I live in Toronto that were certainly part of that fictional creation. Um, the Royal York and the Windsor Arms, both of which have sort of this underlying uh, British sensibility that upstairs, downstairs and an absurd penchant for a good cup of tea. Um, <laughs> so so those sort of uh, influences definitely went into the Regency Grand um, and then there are a couple of uh, hotels in London as well that I, you know, wandered in, had never stayed in that left an impression on me and maybe gave me a little bit of that art deco uh, style that is such a such a hallmark of this particular hotel. 
Yeah. And that too kind of goes hand in hand, I think with golden age mystery to a certain extent, you know, yes. especially the, the Suchet series, which adapted all of the Poirots, you know, those are all set in and around 1936 and they make so much use of the art deco design style in that series. And I, I think we've, we've grown to equate, you know, art deco with golden age mystery, which isn't necessarily borne out by the text themselves, but that's okay. Because <laughs> the adaptations are, are, <laughs> part of the fun. Um, it's nice wallpaper, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. The logo for our podcast is very art deco and we, that was intentional. Of um, course. I'm pretty sure that you made the setting of the book intentionally vague <laughs> because I felt like it could have been London. It could have been New York. It could have been Toronto. Molly sounds vaguely British, but a lot of that is due to the fact that her speech patterns are are somewhat stilted and old fashioned. Mm -hmm. Do you have a specific place in your mind where it was set? I really intentionally created a world where it could be anywhere. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I was looking for the reader to feel what Molly feels every day of her life. You know, she knows exactly where she is. She knows where mm -hmm. the hotel is. She knows where her home is. And really she, she revolves in a very tight circle in her urban center. But every time she goes out into the world, the social niceties are just absolutely disorienting to her. And I really wanted to introduce a new way for the reader to actually feel that. And I picked geography to be that way. So, you know, just when I feel like I've given you enough clues or indication that, oh, this must be the United States. Oh, it's the Olive right. Garden. I recognize that. I know where I am. Mm -hmm. Click. Then I switch on you intentionally. And I suggest that maybe that's not where we are at all. I wanted to create a hyper real place where every time you put a foot down, it sinks into sand because that's how Molly feels every single day of her life. Oh, that's so interesting. I thought you were just, you know, going for universality so that it, and we could just sort of plop the setting into wherever we happen to be. But I love that it's also tied to her character and yeah, her well, experience. that's also true that I did. Yeah. You know, I loved. I like the idea of participation in a mystery. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, my job as a writer is to give you just enough. You know, just enough of everything and just enough description to imagine the hotel, just enough of Molly's viewpoint to imagine yourself as Molly and so on. But if I give too much, then there's no room for you to participate, you know? So with this sort of thinking, I want the reader to be able to sub in their experience of a hotel into the creation in their mind's eye, you know? So many people have written to me and said, oh, I know where this is. This is London. Oh, I know where this is. This is New York. <laughs> and every time I say yes... Right. It's where because it's wherever the reader chooses. Yep. You as the reader get to decide because you are finishing the picture that I started. Well, you and we we've talked so much on this podcast about the notion of agency, mm. which is what I think lies behind the power of mysteries. You know, the idea that a reader is an active participant and can figure it out and yes. use her own brain and get to the solution without the help of the detective, who then confirms that at the end. And um, there are a lot of people who I think love to be active readers like that. Yes. Um, but I, I like the idea that it's not just necessarily as to the puzzle. You can be an active reader in just creating the world, you know, in which the book exists because there are, you know, there's an element of agency in the act of reading 
any book, right? Not just right. mystery. So that's right. That's, but I think yeah. you're right in in noting that one of the fundamental pieces of the mystery is that agency, is that participation. Oh, yeah. I think that that is one of the gifts of the genre, that and the intrinsic engine of the whodunit. Absolutely. So this is a really nosy question, but <laughs> is your last name really prose? <laughs> no, it is not. I, is it pronovost? It is. It's pronovo. It's pronounced pronovo. It's French. Uh-huh. And um, it's very difficult to spell. It, there are many letters, which, you know, your uh, listeners will know a lot about book publishing. It's hard to fit a lot of those letters if you have a very long name on a book mm-hmm. cover. But also in my workplace where I'm an editor, I have long been called prose. Hey, prose. Will you copy edit this? Hey, pros, have you looked at this manuscript? (laughs) Hey, pros, what do you think of this acquisition? And so it has become a a short form for me and for my name that I feel very comfortable with in terms of my profession. And so it just felt like a very natural pen name to take on. Well, I mean, it's and it's too perfect. A, a writer whose last name is Prose, I love it. I suspected that. I mean, I like any book detective worth his salt. I, I did some snooping in the acknowledgments, and you thanked family members with the last name Pronovo, right? And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> aha, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. You know, it's funny. The um, we interviewed a, a while ago the British mystery writer Ruth Ware. Ah, uh, yes, who, and her who last I, who name I, work I believe with. is Warburton. Warburton, yes, yeah, and she did yes. the same 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 exact reason too. She was like, it was too long. It's <laughs> it was just too many too letters. It's just too long. <laughs> Uh, That's great. Well, my last kind of like big question or that, that kind of is touching on theme is that there's a part in the book where your character, Juan Manuel, he says, I'm going to quote here from him. Sometimes you must do one thing bad to do another Mm -hmm. thing. Good. It's not always so clear. So black and white, like everyone thinks, especially when you don't have choices. And let's just say that Molly embraces this line of thinking at the end of the book when we finally discover who done it. And there's a great passage where she observes, justice is like truth. It too is subjective. So many of those who deserve to be punished never receive their just desserts. And in the meantime, good people, decent people are charged with the wrong crimes. It's a flawed system, justice, a dirty, messy, imperfect system. Hmm. Catherine and I have talked on this podcast ad infinitum at this point about how Christie's detectives often resort to extra legal justice uh, for this very reason, you know, but, and this is where I think you're also doing some really interesting and crucial contemporizing of this issue. The difference that I can see between what you're doing and what Christie did is that Christie never really questioned the law enforcement and judicial system, at least not in a robust way. It's actually quite striking how few of her books feature someone who's wrongly convicted. A couple do because that's such a you know traditional way in, right, mm-hmm, to a murder mm-hmm. mystery. This person who you thought did it didn't do it. It was this other person. But she doesn't actually go there very often. And I don't think she's doing a lot of systemic questioning in in a robust way again. But it strikes me that you are doing that here. You know, at another point, the same character, Juan Manuel, he says, the problem is I don't trust the police. When they look at people like me, sometimes all they see is bad. 
And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what you are trying to say about the way that justice works or doesn't work for the characters in this story, both as to the kind of Christie-ish gloss on it, and then maybe something more contemporary, especially given where we are in, mm. in this moment in time. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, I wonder what Christie would have done and would have written uh, vis-a-vis the law and justice if she were alive today, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if her confidence in the legal system might have been shaken, particularly in the last few years. So, yes, there is a certain kind of contemporizing that I'm trying to work into the pages. And I also just wanted to posit a world where justice could be done outside the realm of legality, where somehow you could have a character who has a supremely unique moral compass that hones to her north and that somehow that would reflect what we all want Mm -hmm. but cannot have because justice is so imperfect so that's that's a little bit of what i was trying to do with and and that is you know, minus the spoilers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's great though, because it really is in the tradition of Christie. You know, there's no more extrajudicial ending perhaps than murder on the Orient Express. And I'll leave it at right. that for anyone. Right, right. Who, for the, you know, zero people who are listening to this who haven't read murder on the Orient exactly. Express. Exactly. And you're doing the same thing and yet mm-hmm. it feels so contemporary and there are just touches of it. It's not, it doesn't overwhelm the book because this isn't, this is an uplifting book, but I like that you're not, ignoring that issue, right? Yeah, it's, you know, I think, you know, more so-called commercial fiction um, sometimes gets a bad rap of being uh, too cozy, Mm -hmm. of being, you know, all about artifice or all about plot twists. And mystery can often be accused of that too. Well, it's, it's a whodunit, it's fluff, it's you know, it's just an entertainment because of that puzzle that you talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing more. But certainly Agatha Christie is proof that there was so much depth and such a deep analysis of the human condition in her pages, especially in her later work. I would agree with you on that. And I tried to carry that through in my little first endeavor. Yeah. I mean, mysteries don't have to be complacent. No. Right? Like there's there's really room for questioning <laughs> important things and and for commenting on societal changes. I mean, I've said this so many times, but Christie's books, especially of the latter portion of the 40s and the early 50s, reading her books in order and reading them as closely as Catherine and I did, it was so striking how much commentary she was providing on the post-war condition Mm. of England. And I was like, I feel like I'm learning so much about what it was like to live then, much more than I possibly could if I were just reading a history book. We need to read those too, but you need to read stuff like this along with it because she really is telling us without telling us what, what it was like and what people were concerned with and how things were changing or how things weren't changing fast enough. And there's room for all of that. And I felt like you were doing some of that work as well with where we are right now. Oh, and well, um, the, the subtlety nice to hear. is a compliment. I mean, it, we don't need to be bashed over the head with uh, some of these points. It's it, it kind of makes you then finish the book. And if we're reading closely and we're taking this stuff seriously to think about it on our own, which is of course the best way to be thinking about it. Right. Well, I think, you know, you can get 
the facts from newspapers and from nonfiction, but you can often surmise the feeling and the mood from fiction. And that's why both are so important. Well, I just have two final questions for you. They're very simple. One is, what is your favorite Christie? <laughs> oh, Murder on the Orient Express, for sure. I, In fact, I have my copy sitting right here, a glorious <laughs> hardcover edition that has the title in Art Deco Gold and um, the train featured on the cover. It's, it's beautiful. It's a UK edition. Um, that is by far my favorite. I love the locked room sensibility. I love the sense of travel. I love the, the economy with which she describes the characters and how they spring to life immediately. Everything, everything about this book, I adore. That's and then I, I think a close second would be, yeah. you know, her, uh, so many of her short stories, Three Blind Mice. I mean, I have a great fondness for, mm. but many of her others as well. Murder on the Orient Express is it, it's obviously a, a solid choice. It's funny; it's not one that a lot of people say, actually. Really? So, yeah, but it's one of the crown jewels. Like we we talk about the Christie crown jewels, and the brilliance of of the concepts simply cannot be overstated. And the way that she, you know, with her, there are often you can play the game of finding people who might have done a concept similar to what she did before she did, mm -hmm. that's fine. But Christie did it best. <laughs> well, see, yes, you know, absolutely. You could say the same of Shakespeare, but you, right? know, exactly. you know who did it best. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you. And then Poirot or Marple? Who do you, oh, you have to choose one? You have Marple, to. Marple. Marple. <sighs> I, I don't want to choose. You know how hard that is. But I'm going to choose Marple. I have a, a great fondness for the older female in that role and the burden of invisibility and brilliance in one tight little character package. I suspected that that might be your answer. As, <laughs> as a Marpleite, I... Uh, oh, good. You're on my happy. team? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, completely. yeah. Completely. Excellent. <laughs> well, let's end on that high note. And I should ask you, well, first of all, I, I do know there's a movie that is mm -hmm. uh, in the works. I believe Florence Pugh is attached yes yes indeed star. florence Pugh, the academy award nominee who was in uh black widow and little women mm -hmm. and so much more i just i cannot imagine a better molly um and universal pictures has optioned the film and everything's coming along i can't say much more but i am tremendously excited to see this on the big screen that's fantastic and then are you working on another novel I am working on another novel. In fact, I'm working on several novels. <laughs> <laughs> Are any of them mysteries? Are you sticking with the mystery genre? Yes, some, well, actually, all of them are mysteries, but they are unusual mysteries. As I mentioned before, the, my solution to the problem is how am I going to innovate this? How am I going to try and do something mm -hmm. different? Mm -hmm. um, is always about a study of form and a combination of this and that. So, yes, I have a few things in the hopper. I really have not yet committed to exactly what I'm going to do next, um, but I know that whatever I do next, I cannot escape my own hallmarks. And, and part of that is at that sense of mystery. You're going to be expanding that accordion as, as, exactly. as far as possible, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, this was a total pleasure as is your book. I obviously highly recommend uh, that everyone go out and buy a copy of The Maid. I think if you are a mystery fan, especially given the caveats that we have in this conversation as to the kind of mystery it is, I really think that there's so much to appreciate for those who love Christie and love mystery overall. And it's so interesting what you did here in a contemporary setting and with such a fascinating character. So thank you for the book and thank you for sitting down with me. 
Thank you so much, Kemper. And thank you all you readers out there. I have no doubt that there will be many more novels to come from Nita Prose. I'm really looking forward to reading them. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation and that you enjoyed the book. So for our next episode, I will be covering a Poirot short story. That would be Wasp's Nest. And the next novel that we will be covering is also a Poirot story. That would be Elephants Can Remember, a Poirot and Ariadne Oliver joint. And I will be ranking that book with the one, the only Dr. Mark Aldridge, who has appeared on this podcast many times before. And I'm really looking forward to uh, having a conversation with him about it. If you would like to hear more from me, you can always go on over to the podcast's Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. There's a link in the notes to this episode. And you could always contact me via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Or you can visit the podcast on social media. We are at allaboutthedame on Twitter and at allaboutagatha on Instagram please do give us a rating and or a review if you haven't yet done so really really helps the podcast out and i appreciate every single one of them and read every single one of them and i'll see you next time bye